Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 18 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you want to contact us, then email Inside the West End at gmail.com. Coming up on this episode, we speak to Lawrence Connor. Now, Lawrence Connor is one of the biggest directors currently working in musical theatre in the world. Cameron McIntosh asked Lawrence to direct his new productions of Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, Miss Saigon. Um, and Rob, you met Lawrence when you were working on the Jesus Christ Superstar Arena Tour, right? Yes, I did. And from that, he went on to direct Andrew Lloyd Webber and Julian Fellow's brand new musical, School of Rock, on Broadway. Rave reviews over there. It's coming to London this autumn. So we met up with Lawrence to ask all about that and ask how he got to where he is. Before we chat about that, we just wanted to say, I'm massive thank you to all of you who have gone on our website and clicked the donate button as you know (laughs) as you know we make this for free we really appreciate anyone who gives us even a a few quid just to uh, say thanks for the work we're making we're glad it's entertaining you and thank you very much yeah really appreciate it just go on our website inside the west end.com click on the button throw in whatever you can afford and if you can't can just send us a tweet and say thank you yeah that's actually more valuable yeah I would say do you know I prefer money if I'm honest I prefer money but (laughs) I'm not gonna lie you know (laughs) yeah no it does cost us money to make this podcast you know there are lots of uh, expenses involved so that would really be a great help anyway let's get on with the chat Rob you ready for this oh I'm born ready here's Lawrence Connor I get a W and an ER at the end of Connor that must be so annoying Mm. it's not even really my name my name's Lawrence O'Connor so oh is it so are you Irish I am yeah oh very good which parts well my dad's from Wexford okay and my mum's from Kilkenny Oh, fantastic. Where are you from? I'm from Dublin. So I I'm, see. I'm yeah, right yeah, in the mountains yeah. there. So. It's so. beautiful. Should we do this? Let's do it. Do it. In the words of a 70-year-old actor I once worked with seconds before the show started, let's fuck this pig. <laughs> <laughs> this is Lawrence Connor, and you're listening to Inside the West End. Lawrence Connor, welcome to Inside the West End. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, you've come to here today straight from the auditions for School of Rock London opening in autumn. Mm-hmm. How's your day been? How's it gone? It's been good. You know, it's the first day for us uh, looking at adults. Uh, we we actually did see we did see a few adults uh, about a month ago for a sort of first scout, if you like. Um, but today was where we, we we've just spent about two or three weeks casting children, uh, which is always the most difficult part. You know, so you sort of do that first, and then once you know how tall your children are, how old your children are, you can start to sort of cast their parents and their and their uh, teachers so that's what we started today and um, started looking at some principles and yeah it's a lot of fun have you been getting texts from all your friends or parents saying my, my son would be good for that my daughter would be trying to you win know, them in. i actually haven't i managed I, i'm quite good at sort of avoiding all of that and sort of you tend to sort of throw your associate under the bus and sort of let them take the sort of fall for all of that 
we asked Tim mentioned the same thing about Matilda. He said he regularly gets little videos. He gets things with his daughters singing the songs. Does going, he? That'd be great for that, wouldn't it? Yeah. And he He's so me. much more approachable than me, though. I think, <laughs> I think you know, his the ginger hair. It's much more appealing. I think. So, School of Rock. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, all these massive productions that you've had the honour of, of reimagining, redirecting for a new audience. Before we get to all of that, mm-hmm. we want to take you right back and hear about the young Lawrence Connor growing up. What was your world like? You know, the first place I remember living was um, above a carpet shop on Kensington High Street, sort of by Brook Green, sort of around that way. Um, and I went to a small little school around the corner called Avonmore Primary, which I remember very well. I remember my teacher, Miss Honeyset, who was uh, my favourite teacher at in the world um and at the time my dad my my dad was like a barman and my mum was like a cleaning lady for about three different jobs and we moved from there when I was about 10 to uh Chiswick and my my parents have been living there ever since and uh and I just went grew up like any any other kid I mean drama was about as far away from my world as you can imagine I grew up two Irish parents who never went to the theatre. The sort of idea of ever going to anything with a, a pros was to a cinema. And we, I think I, I think all I managed to get out of them was Superman and Star Wars. That was the only two movies that I was ever allowed to go and see. And um, only because my dad wanted to see them. And then I, I, I was at school, it was at secondary school, when I was about 13, that I started to do drama. Um, and I started to get into drama, and it was the one area that I felt that I, I enjoyed the most. Um, and there was my teacher was called Mr. Bradley, and he was uh, an extraordinary teacher. And it was from that that I decided that I wanted to be an actor. And of course, I went to a, a rec- regular comprehensive school, and nobody, you know, when you sort of said to your teachers that you wanted to be an actor, they sort of laughed at you as though it wasn't a real job. And um, but I was kind of determined to do it, and I kept pushing myself, and it was all university and all of that. You, you kind of decide that you just need to focus on that one thing. And I ended up leaving university early to do a, an acting job, because I, I was doing amateur dramatics. And uh, a friend of mine uh, suggested that I go with him to gatecrash this professional or pro-am. Uh, production that was going on in Cambridge and we did uh, and we spent the summer doing that and um, yeah that was it the rest was history as they said what were you doing at uni that you dropped out of English and drama okay. but um, I just it was more I guess I was I was gearing more towards becoming a teacher really I, I didn't really I, I, I didn't really know how to become an actor um, it didn't it just wasn't on my radar and so I, I was literally just doing the amateur dramatic thing and having a lot of fun doing that but I never I had no idea how I didn't know anything about drama school you know I didn't know any actors so it was just sort of it just sort of happened by chance really and I just had a passion for it and I think that was what really sort of fueled it um, and I continued working on it until I got what I wanted and then I did that for I don't know I must have been acting professionally probably for about 10 years so how did you get from the pro-am to working as solidly as an actor I think it was more I think I, you know I just went through the the stages of first of all we we gate crashed this audition and because they were professional suddenly I was with professional actors and suddenly they uh, they they knew the routine like they went regularly to professional auditions they had an agent they you know had their 
CVs all perfectly presented and like, the headshots. And, and they, they sort of taught me how to get seen and taught me how to get an agent. Um, and so I pushed and pushed to, to get what I wanted. And eventually um, I got an agent um, um, and I, I just kept jobbing after that. And I, I don't think I was that good, if I'm honest. I mean, I, I had a lot of energy and I had a very loud, big voice. Uh, and that was the truth. Is that singing or speaking? Singing and speaking. I think I was a bit loud. I mean, it's funny. I was watching, uh, I was sitting watching this old amateur video. I was exchanging with my partner about um, videos that we've, shows we've done. And I showed, all I could hear was my ridiculous, ridiculously loud voice over everybody else and then suddenly I went oh yeah I used to get a note about that quite a lot <laughs> uh, I sort of made me think yeah I, I was god I was I was annoying so um yeah that's kind of what where I started and I guess I jobbed for about 10 years or so and then it was actually I, I managed to get into Les Mis which was the show that I was so hungry and desperate to get into um I was doing the tour of that and uh, when are we talking what kind of year Gosh, that would be about 17 years ago, 98, 97, yeah. something like that. And then I, um, I remember saying to somebody one day, I was, I was literally, uh, I had done a year and then I was asked to be the dance captain of that show. And part of my duties was to direct the children into every venue that we went to. Um, and I had a really good day of um, rehearsing children. And I, I think I just off the cuff said to somebody, you know, I'd really love a job where all I had to do was direct children. Um, and I think about a week or so later, just out of the blue, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who said that a friend of his was um, going to be the resident director on The King and I that was coming into the London Palladium and they wanted a children's director and would I be interested in meeting with him? Um, and I did and I got that job and then suddenly I wasn't an actor anymore. I was sort of on the other side of the table and uh, I enjoyed it a lot and suddenly I became a resident director and started to make my move up and I never really looked back. But how did you know how to direct? Was it just instinctive for you? Or was it from watching the people that you had worked with? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm a mixture of a lot of things. I think I've always been opinionated. I've always, I think I've always had, uh, you know, I've worked with some very good directors. And so I've learnt my craft. I've certainly learnt how to act from those people. Um, and I think when it came to, I think, you know, cutting your teeth, working with children, you have to learn how to do that you have to sort of work out how to get the best out of children and I sort of feel if you can do that actually talking to adults is kind of easy really because they're going to be on your level and I guess once I figured out how to, to direct children it was just the, the next step and as a resident director it's sort of done for you in many ways you're, you're really assisting a director you're really um, learning from them and trying to maintain their vision. Um, and I did that with a couple of shows and I, and I learned an awful lot. And it was only until really um, Miss Saigon came along, having worked with Cameron, this opportunity to, to, to reimagine it, I guess. Mm. Uh, this tour that we were doing, uh, gosh, over 10 years ago, I guess we did. And um, that was the first time I really took hold of it and um, started directing myself and that was only the, it's only when you really do it do you really know you can do it mm. um and, and what a forum to have that experience on as in if you're going to find out you can direct doing it on miss saigon for Cameron mcintosh yeah well you know Cameron mcintosh is uh had has been great for me and and he apart from 
apart from sort of giving me the opportunity, he's always been there as a guide too. And yeah, he never lets you get away with too much. If you go, if you go too crazy, he'll soon grab you by the scruff of the neck and and pull you back and say, "You're not doing that to my show." But he's uh, but by the same token, I've learned so much from him, um, and I think having worked certainly in that. In that world and in those gigantic shows, you you learn a lot. You learn a lot about craft. You learn a lot about how to work with a team.、Um, you know, he put he certainly puts you with some of the greatest people in the world,、um, and you you just. You just have to take it in. You have to trust in your own abilities,、um, and then you have to work as a team and and build on it. And、uh, that's pretty much how it all worked. As a, as a director, you sometimes have to stand up to producers if you strongly believe in something. That's that's part of any process、uh, with a, with a show.、Yeah. But when you're dealing with big personalities such as Cameron or, or Andrew Lloyd Webber, it, how do you get over there being any intimidation on how? Prolific their careers are, or do you just have to switch that off? You just switch it off. I think because they're. I mean, ultimately. So you've mentioned Cameron. Cameron's been working for for years. He's worked with everybody. He's created the greatest shows in the world,、um, and so you know he's he has a lot of opinions and a lot of ways of working. But I guess the truth is he also. Need somebody with a vision to to come in and sort of throw ideas out there, so that he can say yes, that's great, or actually no, that's not good. And what I found with Cameron is, he would there'd be times that I would not be so sure about something, and he would actually be the person that gives me the answer, you know, just by some of the things that he would say. And so you collaborate, and I think when you when you're in when you work as a collaborator,、uh, and you you understand how each other's、uh, Worlds work. It 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 just sort of falls into place, and I think we've just had this deep respect for one another. That when those moments come where you don't,、uh, you're not sort of seeing eye to eye. It can get a little. I mean, we're both very passionate people, so there has been times where we have lost our rags with each other. We've shouted at each other, but it's kind of part of it. Passion is passion, and I think if you're, as long as your your conviction is true. He's like anyone else. He he'll he'll sort of step back and go. Well, he really feels strongly about this. Maybe I should listen. And、um, by the same token, I I I do the same.、Um, and Andrew's different in a, in a way that Andrew's an artist, like first and foremost. So you're working with another artist. So having、um, worked with him on Superstar and on Phantom and on, of course, School of Rock, which we worked far closer than we've ever worked. You know, at the end of the day. With School of Rock, I was working with a guy who we were sitting together trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what the story should be, what the music should be, whether the music was right, and he's he's an artist first in that moment, and then occasionally he has to step out of those shoes and then put on his producer's cap and say, you know, we can't do this, and so we 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 do have to sort of flip between the relationship a bit, but it's but generally I think. The relationship, certainly with Andrew, has been incredibly rewarding because you know if you're taking on a show like、um, School of Rock, which is a show that I have wanted to direct for about ten years, and I've been sort of saying it to anyone who'd listen for that amount of time,、um, and I just happened to say it to Andrew without realizing that he was getting the rights at the time, and it just ha- so happened to just fall into place. And of course, once we started to talk about how we were going to build it,、um, you. 
you have to you have to work together and you have to find a respect for one another and you have to forget about what you've done before or who you are before and you just have to come to the table as two new collaborators who are building something um and that's really the only way it'll work otherwise it you just won't get the product that you want I want to backpedal just a little bit to mm. the time when you were an actor. Yeah. What do you think it was in your work ethic or your dynamic in the room that, that led people to trust uh, in your people skills? Where did it come from, do you think? I don't know. I think, you know, I, I, I'll be honest with you. When I was doing Les Miserables, I had never considered directing before. It was never, ever on my radar. I, I never sort of thought, I never thought I was a director. I was just an actor who was just grateful to be working because it was so hard to get work. Um, it was when I was doing Les Miserables, I, they used to do these little concert things. Because um, we would do, when I did Les Mis in the old days, it, they would sort of sit for three months in every venue. And they would, in every single venue, they would do a charity concert uh, where members of the cast would get up and sing a song and, you know, do a little piece and they'd raise money for charity. <clears throat> I always admired people for wanting to do that, but thought it, I, I never, ever wanted to be part of it because the idea of giving up my Sunday to, <laughs> to sing my audition material just seemed like the worst idea in the world. So I, I, I was never really into all of that. Um, and my friend Bobby Chat, who was uh, in the show with me, uh, I was I'd literally just had my wisdom tooth taken out of my mouth. So I was off the show because I had blood on my cords and I was in agony. And I get this phone call mid show from Bobby Chat saying, you know, we think we're thinking about doing a slice of Saturday night in Liverpool and wondered if you would direct it. And of course, I was in agony and I just wanted to take my painkiller. And I, I went, um, sure, that sounds like it would be fun. Um, and it was more that somebody else saw that I would be good at it. And, and I guess when I asked her why, she just thought I was the sort of actor that would be good at directing. Mm. Um and I did it. And in the end, I ended up having to actually be in it because um, the guy, one of the roles, one of the guys just decided he didn't want to do it. And um, in the end, I had to sort of step into those shoes and I ended up playing one of the characters in it, which was hard because it was hard to direct something and be in it. But um, yeah, I've never done that since. But it was, but it was, I guess it was the first taste. And you, I was working with all my friends. They were all people that were in the show. Yeah. Uh, we had a relationship with, we were having fun and you know they were trusting me with what i was wanting them to do um and then the show was a, a really big success that night and we were very fortunate because unbeknownst to us that, that after that, that conversation um we were in edinburgh and we were about a month and a half two months or what three months maybe even uh, from going to liverpool and doing this show so we had three months to put this thing together um, and we didn't realize that the way that the schedule was working is that when we were finishing Liverpool, we were then going to be going to Dublin. And that meant a cast change. We were going to have completely Irish principles. Is that where Colin Wilkinson? Colin Wilkinson was coming. And it just so happened we were going to start rehearsing that new company the day after this Sunday show. So we had no idea that that was happening. It wasn't in our, it wasn't, certainly wasn't on our radar. Mm. And we probably wouldn't have done it had we known that this important rehearsal period was coming up. But we'd already committed to it. Um, and we'd even gone on, 
we'd even gone down to uh, this morning and done this uh, this makeover, you know, from the glams to the glums, you know, uh, dressed, you know, we're dressed in our lamest gear, and Less next minute they did this makeover, <laughs> and we walked out looking like we were straight out of the sixties, and suddenly we sold all these tickets, so we were committed to this thing, um, but then. As a result of that, Cameron McIntosh turns up and Nick Allett and, uh, uh, you know, everybody that was involved with that. The whole team had come to visit the show, found out that this com- the company were doing the show and all sort of turned up, Matt Ryan and various other people. And it was... Um, it turned out to be quite an amazing night. And I, everyone had a great time. Um, and I suppose it just it just kind of got us noticed, really. And, and the the technical side of directing, mm. like dis- making decisions about lighting and stuff. Obviously, you have teams at your disposal to sort those things out. But did you just learn them on the go? Was it part of being a resident that you were able to? Yeah, I think you learn. You, I mean, at the end of the day, you sort of go, "I can't see that person. Can we put a light on them?" In the very, in, in its very <laughs> basic form. I mean, I do. I'm very lucky. I don't think I've worked with a bad lighting designer, and and it's and it's amazing how they craft and you know and do their thing. And half the time, you just try not to get in their way um, because when you see that they're creating such depth and such incredible thing, Paulie Constable is like an absolute artist uh, and you when when you're work, working with her you you just need to kind of let her do her thing bruno who did our miss saigon and natasha cat i mean there's some of the greatest lighting designers in the world and when you when you watch them sculpt you just let them do what they're doing and then there'll come a point where you go you know what this is happening here, this is happening here, I really want to see this, I want to see it like this. And then you just get involved with the drama. And to be honest with you, I I would say that they tend to come to you more, asking you questions about what's going on and and where the drama is, and they already come with it. So, I mean, that's why they get that designer title, because they really are very much that. Um, And of course, I I like to think of being a director as as being a, a hub in a wheel. You know, you sort of, you're the center of it and people come to you with lots and lots of questions um and you you you're from that hub you sort of have to fork out in very many different directions to sort of meet your goals with very different people in the team but but ultimately it's like you you just hold the center everyone else has their very important structural job um and it's as long as you work as one it, it usually it usually works very well we keep mentioning resident director. So you've been one and now you're a director who has them working with you. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that relationship? And has your view of it changed since becoming a director? Yeah, um, gosh, that's a good question. Yeah, I guess so, because I know what it feels like to be one. I know how hard it is to be one. Because I guess you are the you are the person that is there at the theatre. And your job is to maintain the show that another director has directed. Um, and, you know, you well, if it's a long-running show, you are pretty much in control and in charge of that show for long periods of time before anybody even comes up to sort of see if it's all okay. So, for example, when I was the resident director of Phantom, there would be, you know, Hal would pop in maybe once a year and um, look at the show and have some notes and want to do some work with the actors. And I would be there facilitating his needs and making sure that if there were things that he wasn't happy about, that I would make sure that those things didn't happen again. And, you know, just trying to understand his vision of it, which is hard, especially when you're not there 
when the whole show was conceived. So I walked into Phantom not knowing the whole past history, just having an opinion, and started working on certain things. Um, and a lot of it, Hal liked, although it was sl- it was a slightly different um, interpretation of things dramatically. He was he 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 quite liked the direction that the show was going. Um, and and we worked very well together. But of course, then uh, the busier I became, the less able I was able to be the resident director, I guess, at Phantom, and eventually had to step away from it. But going back to your question, I think you... It's a it's a very difficult job because you you're you're pretty much there all the time, and you have to change you have to decide whether certain actors have outgrown the role, you know, and you you have a personal relationship with those actors, and you you have to be the person to sort of talk to them and say you know I think maybe it's time to leave and and it's not an easy job uh, and it, where it's it's easy when you're totally detached to sort of pop in and say my show's not working well this person isn't doing great you know I think it's time for change and then just walk off and let someone else deal with it but that person who's right there has to sit in an office and have words with people and talk to them and explain why they then have to do the rehearsals they have to do the cast change um and it is a it's a lot of work and it's a lot of responsibility and um i think sometimes uh resident directors don't get enough credit for the work that they do um so i try and realize that and i try my best to appreciate what they're doing and most of the resident directors and associates that i work are very good friends of mine um and, and and I have a massive amount of respect for, but there are times when you'll rock up and you'll go, I'm not happy, you know, and you need to be able to have that relationship. You need to be able to say, this isn't what I directed. This isn't my vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to put this back because this is not, this is not an improvement in the right way. Um, but sometimes it is. And sometimes you'll turn up and you'll go, oh, that's different. Uh, and you know the resident will say oh yeah, yeah we, we just made that change because this that and you'll go yeah, no, I like it it's good and then it's fine and you've given your little seal of approval and it's it works and I think as long as you have that relationship and understanding it's good it's when I guess those relationships are a little fractured and you're not in communication suddenly you turn up and things have gone out of control because maybe a I don't know, a resident's not had the support or he's not had um, the information. Uh, it can be hard. But I think as long as you're trying to help and support them, it's it's a good relationship. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We release a new episode every week and if you're subscribed, it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to. It's easy to subscribe if you've got an iPhone, next to the logo of our show, you'll see a little settings wheel that looks a bit like a cog. Click on that. A few options down, it says subscribe. And the best part is, it's completely free. Now back to Lawrence Connor. You mentioned auditions mm-hmm. when, uh, when you were talking about the role of a resident just there. What are the big um, mistakes that people make in auditions? But sometimes people come in and they think they've done a terrible audition and we love them. Because they're not following a formula or they're not, they're just being themselves. And I think ultimately the mistake is to try too hard to be something that you're not. Because ultimately, um, you know, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's hard for you to know that your wackiness when you walk into a room is at a time when 
I don't know, we've just had a phone call and you're dealing with stuff and this, that and the other's going on or you've had a really long afternoon or you've got a headache and somebody walk in and you're not to know. Um, but I guess the truth is all you can really do is go into an audition and just be amazing and do your best. And I think ultimately every team hopes that the person that walks through the door is going to be that next discovery, is going to be somebody amazing and is going to be the person that they're looking for. And I think a lot of actors don't know that. I think actors sort of assume that they, that they, they, they need to please us or that they have to give us what we want. But half the time we don't know what we want. We're looking for what we want in you. And and I think once you once you see something special, once you see... Uh, something that somebody brings that just steps out of the sort of banal or something that's just ordinary. It you just suddenly you find something special, and and it usually happens in the most surprising places. Do you think actors uh, fit into categories? Do you think some people will will always be uh, ensemble members and covers? Some people are born to play leads, or do you mm. think that people can learn to rise? right to the top I've seen it I mean I've seen it happen a lot and I've actually done that to for a lot of people um you know I I think it there isn't a, there is no answer to that because if somebody it depends on who the director is and I think really uh you know let's just say you walk in and you audition for me and I just sort of I'm not you're not really quite what I'm looking for or you're not right it doesn't mean that you're not good. It doesn't mean that you haven't got something to offer. And you might walk into another room with another director who's looking for exactly you. And suddenly you're catapulted into mm. fame and fortune and the, the rest is history. For example, when, when we were doing um, when we were doing the read through for School of Rock, we just put together a, a bunch of actors um, based on a bunch of CVs that I was given from Tara Rubin, the casting director in New York. Um, and we just had a bunch of people who I'd never met before, who I just people that came on good authority, that they were good people. I wanted all adults to play the children's role and they all doubled up. Um, and we just, we just did a week of reading the script. And, and the guy who was playing Dewey was somebody that I had seen um, in the Book of Mormon on Broadway and he was very good but there was just this guy on the side who um I liked I just there was something about him there was a nice energy about him and I'd said to the casting director you know when we come to cast I really want to see him for Dewey uh and she, and they were a little surprised they said he's yeah he's great he's a great energy but is that how young you be prepared to go and and I said, you know what, I do. And I don't know if he'd be the role. Maybe he'll just be a cover. But I like him. And I think he he's, there's something about him that feels very Dewey-like. And he'd never played a lead role before. So he wasn't on a, the lead role radar, if you like. Um, and then I saw a lot of people. And I saw a lot of the big famous names that you would expect to see for that role. And if there was a top 10 list of people who you should see, I saw them. Um, but then when Alex walked through the door, Alex was the guy that, in my opinion, was the guy I was looking for. I saw nobody that um, was as generous or as special or I felt had the energy to do a musical version of this role who was going to redefine it for a musical like I felt he could. And I really believed I could I could create the show with him. Um, 
And of course, I had to convince Andrew of this and I had to, I put my trust in him. But he hadn't played a role before. He he was that young actor that you're talking about who probably thought he was always going to be in the ensemble, who was nominated for a Tony this year for that very role. So no is the answer. I don't think it is. I think it can come at any time. But it's one of those business that can also overlook you too. Is any part of you as a director in that situation thinking... You, you, know, you, you obviously have to fight for an unknown in that situation. Mm. And in this situation, in this time, it, it's worked fa- better than you probably could have ever imagined. But is any part of you during that process panic and go, oh, I've, I've really, my neck's on the line now. If, if this doesn't work, <laughs> I, I, it's my name above the door. Like. Uh, yeah, and I know. Uh, what, what's the right answer to that? I guess, I it, guess your neck is on the line, I guess. But the truth is, you know, yeah, and, and when you know, you know, and and it's you know. I mean, I knew that Alex one wasn't going to let me down, and two, he was going to work his socks off to to get to to be the best at that role, and that's what I needed. I needed somebody hungry, and I needed somebody who could sing this score that was a really difficult score that Andrew had written, um, and be loved you know when you've got children on stage uh, it is very easy for actors to be seen as people who are not very supportive of those children and it's very hard to be giving and it it was very important to me that he he understood that when he was playing this role that although he was the lead the children were the leads too and he had to share that limelight with them and not a lot of actors can do that and uh that was such an important thing, and I think he rose to that occasion incredibly well. And it happens, you know, it happens an awful lot. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm in the position to to be able to see talent first, um, and really push for that. There are obviously going to be times where producers, if you, the bigger your show and the the bigger the finance or whatever that they put into it that they need a name or that that's an that's an easy way to go fortunately for me school of rock as a title was a big title as is miss saigon um and fortunately there's those titles are so big that they they sort of will overshadow a name um and so you get the people you need to tell your story and that's the best position to be in School of Rock is uh, your first new musical that yeah. you've directed. Has that changed your approach as a director? No, not really. I mean, I think the difference really is about the building blocks. I mean, what what's wonderful about doing a revival is that you know it works and you know what doesn't work. Um, so it you're really only looking at certain areas to rethink um, and reimagine so for example let's just say when i did jesus christ superstar with you rob that you you know i was i was very fortunate that i was able to completely rethink it i was able to we it was in an arena setting so anything went you know suddenly you were out of a theater um and you had a a bigger cast and a a bigger setting in order to set the piece therefore you could do whatever you wanted to and to 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 suddenly throw the idea of setting it in amongst the the london riots to to suddenly give it a very modern contemporary take even sort of look at uh 
changing some of the orchestrations to give it a more trance-like dance-style beat in places were were great, you know, and we were able to do it. But ultimately, did I know that Jesus Christ Superstar, the show worked from start to finish? Yeah, 40 years told me it did. Maybe there was one lyric that I had to change. But... Um, but that was that and miss saigon was the same it was a, it 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 was a very successful show in the west end for 10 years and uh, was it even 15 years and it, it it worked but when we came to do it again um we did discuss some of the things that we didn't feel worked for example the character ellen we felt was a little bit harsh in the original idea and everything that she sang was brutal and it made her seem a little neurotic at times and so we we addressed it by creating a new song for her that would sort of show it from her point of view and then once we started doing that you know it's we started looking at the lyrics throughout the piece and it was as a team, you know, to have Claude Michel and Alain right there and, and Cameron and everybody came back to st- start looking at it. We were allowed to sort of just play with the lyrics, but the construction of the piece, it works. When you're doing a brand new show, you have no construction. You you have to blindly piece things together. And actually, we, we were quite fortunate. Andrew had this brainwave when we were in New York to, to do a workshop in... Uh, like it was a tiny little rock club in Gramercy in New York, which is downtown, around 23rd Street. And we basically took this little rock club, put a loading lighting truss and got a bunch of children in this pee alcohol smelling rock place. And we started to patch out the scene and we did a very raw version of the show. And what was brilliant about that is if you open a show out of town, let's just say we we opened School of Rock in Seattle, we would have to take a theatre, we would have all the technical elements, we'd have all of those things. And if you wanted to change something, you have to unpick every single technical thing in order to make that happen. And it's hard. With this, we were just working on the book. And when we first started out with School of Rock, the whole first 20 minutes was completely different. We introduced the kids right at the very beginning um, and it, we started at the school and and we realised by the third performance that once you introduce the children, it was almost impossible to introduce the other characters of the show because no one cared. Mm. No one cared about Ned. No one cared about Patty. They just wanted to know when the kids were going to play the guitars and they were just waiting for it. So... After observing this and after watching it, we sort of sat down around a table and we thrashed out what would be the best way to address that. And literally, we we decided we weren't going to perform for a few nights. We rewrote the whole opening. We rehearsed it in two days. And then suddenly we opened again with a brand new opening. And that's how the show was built. Now, if we'd have been in a theatre, we never would have been able to do that. We never would have had the creative time to do that. Um, and so it was it was interesting that what we thought was the right building blocks, when, when we just had a book and we were all sitting around talking and being smart about it, that once you actually put an audience in front of it, what doesn't work is really obvious. Um, and you have the opportunity then to, to start rethinking it. And I think that that was a really wonderful opportunity to do that. We have a question that we ask everyone that we interview. Yeah. And you can interpret this as you will. (laughs) Is show business a game that you need to learn how to play? 
Yeah, I would say that for me, it certainly was something that I've learned. Um, I think you have to. I mean, I think everyone has an opinion. Every there's, there's not one person who doesn't have an opinion on show business. I mean, you just have to look at Twitter and blogging, and everyone has an opinion who has nothing to do with theatre itself. Um, to be part of it, to be involved in it, I think you you do. I think when you certainly from my point of view this 14 year old boy in drama school I didn't even know how to go to drama school I didn't even know how to stand on a stage let alone direct a Broadway production you know 30 odd years later so had I not gone through the process had I not gone through every single step of my journey that that is very unlikely to have happened um and I think I think there are people who are very lucky who who do step into this world and are discovered right at the beginning and they they just seem to have it. But I think to to really have a to 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 really establish yourself and to really uh to sustain a career, you have to understand it. You have to know what people expect you have to understand your audiences and you have to learn that you can't just you not everybody's born with a gift of just knowing it so i say yes you've had so much success i mean you've just mentioned that that journey right there that arc mm. um one of the things our listeners find very inspiring is hearing people like you talk about the times when it was more difficult. Mm. Have you ever wanted to leave the industry? Have, has it ever been... Oh my God, I absolutely was going to. I had... This is the funny thing about the whole... Les Mis for me was... You know, it's very, it's funny that I ended up directing a new version of it. I got to do the O2 concert because Les Mis has been a massive turning point in my life. I literally remember auditioning for that show about six times in for this audition you know i'd just been through it over and over again in the same in the same for this one for this one i mean i've done it a thousand auditions in the years before but on this one time i'd auditioned and i got to a point where i thought you know what i'm done i'm really done with it and i was i must have been 27 i was i got to a point where i went you know this profession is not paying i'm going to be 30 soon what kind of you know what kind of life is this i just can't do it anymore and i remember meeting my friend who was working in a bar up in angel and islington and just sitting and drinking at the bar thinking i'm done i'm really done um and i'm not i'm going to just give up and i had made that decision to give up and i really would have done and and started to think right you need to do something else and I have no idea what it would have been but I knew that I was done with the trying to go into auditions trying to be a good actor trying to sing a song to impress people warming up at eight o'clock in the morning and getting on trains I was done with it and I and I knew that it was over and then I got a call asking if I would like to be in the company of Les Miserables um and I, I, it was amazing. And suddenly I got it. I'd achieved the show that I'd always wanted to be in. But that was it. That was the moment for me. Because before that, I had done acting work and I had done lots and lots of very different things. But I hadn't, I mean, you know, I was filing tax returns for my acting work of like 
four thousand pounds a year <laughs> you know i wouldn't even have to pay tax on it because i had so little and there would be times where it would be a lot better than that and other times but there would it was just hard and you know i remember i was working on phones in in uh Camden Town sort of answering phones just to make ends meet you know just to pay the rent um and it was tough it was just it was that an actor's life is tough you know um but since Les Mis and since uh, since I made that decision to transition to directing I've been very fortunate um and I guess it's a fit you know I, I found my fit I found where I fit in the industry and and what what worked for me and suddenly it all made sense and really I think I had, that was my period of true learning and my time in the desert <laughs> with it, you know not eating and just praying and then eventually the rewards came it must be nice if you're listening to this as someone who's maybe auditioning for you or has auditioned for you and working on the phones and cameras yeah like, <laughs> we you presume the panel <laughs> don't know that you're going through that but mm. you must be very aware of it when people walk in the room absolutely i mean I, I know what it's like to be an actor and um you want to give everybody a chance and um and i like that's why i like to work with my actors i like to sort of spend time with them and i like to let them do as much of the material as they've kind of you know worked on if you've sent them 75 pages it seems a bit unfair to say just do one but obviously you can't do it all the time you simply can't because there just isn't enough hours in every day but you do want to try and give everybody a proper chance and and see them at their best especially when you know that they're not when you know that they're not being their best and just saying okay stop do it again or have another go at that um and it's because you want you want to see people be good, you know, and feel good about it and feel good about auditioning for you. Lawrence, it's been such an incredible and inspiring interview. Um, our last question is always the same mm -hmm. to each of our guests. And that is to you, Lawrence Connor. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to anyone who wanted to work inside the West End? You know, hard work and um, never, never... I, do you know what the the? It's interesting because I think the the thing that I'm seeing more and more working in New York and working here is that I think we we have a great skills and great craft and I think we act incredibly well here. But people are, commit to just one thing, and I think if you really want to work in the West End, you have to be versatile and you have to be able to to be able to move and be able to to sing and to really act and not just say oh no I'm a dancer I'm not a singer I think you have to really work hard at it all and never allow yourself to be that person that just um just gives up on 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 any of it I think hard work and a dedication to anything even if you're not brilliant at it but you dedicating time and hard work pays off because you will only get better and um you know, here's the thing. I, I see people often and you might not remember them all the time, but people stick in your mind for various different reasons. And there'll be certain actors that I've not employed because I've just not I've not had the right job for them. But it doesn't mean I don't remember them or remember what I saw them for or what I liked about them. Um, but if they kind of suddenly turn up and they're not as good or they, they think, oh, my memory of them was better than that because they've suddenly just lost hope or they've suddenly, they're ringing it in and they're just not really interested in it anymore. 
But then there are those who you sort of remember, then they come and you go, my God, they've really been working on it. Or they're, you know, it really sticks. And I think hard, if you want to work in it, it's a really competitive difficult profession and if you want to if you want to win Wimbledon you're not going to win Wimbledon by not practicing your serve and you're not going to win Wimbledon by not practicing being a great tennis player so you've got to you've got to keep training you've got to keep and you've got to make sure that you never ever drop the ball that what amazing advice ends on um thank you so much for chatting to us and answering all our questions I also wanted to say thank you for casting me a superstar because I met my wife on it. I know. and uh, That is so sweet. There's not many people I can say that to in life. But if I hadn't got that job, I wouldn't have, I would not have, our paths wouldn't have crossed. Wow. So. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you. A massive thank you to Lawrence for coming to see us. He'd been sat in a studio in Covent Garden doing auditions all day long for School of Rock. So to then sprint across town to come and speak to us, uh, Lawrence, we really, really appreciate it. We also want to say a big thank you uh, to Annie Francis, who helps us get the studio space that we use in Soho when a theatre is not available. So Annie, thank you. And Ben, you've got a thank you. Yeah, uh, we want to say a huge thank you to the legend that is Matthew Pell. Matthew's done all of the snazzy artwork that you see related to Inside the West End podcast. And we love it. I think it looks so cool. Yeah. And, and Matt did all that for us for free because he's a legend and a good friend. Thank you, Matthew Pell. We'd love you to get in contact with us. We're on Twitter at Inside West End. We would also love you to keep sharing our episodes online or by word of mouth. Both go a really long way. So keep it going. We make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first. Click on any of the Amazon adverts on our site. It will take you straight to Amazon. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. That's all for this week. Keep an eye on Twitter at Inside West End to see who's our guest on the next episode. Thanks for listening.